a pleasant Monday. This is Ozarks at Large for September 19th, 2022 on your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellums. Some of the best young tennis players from around the world begin play in Fayetteville today as part of the UTSA Fayetteville Futures Tournament. Competition will continue through Sunday. The University of Arkansas is the host. You can find out more by going to ArkansasRazorbacks.com. Ahead today on Ozarks at Large, the latest collection of archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History will help us trace the roots of sharper image to Arkansas. The company that became synonymous with massage chairs and neck coolers was created by an Arkansas native. The then and now story of the unique retailer later on our show. First up, Arkansas has the lowest number of employed veterinarians, according to a study from veterinarians.org. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports veterinarians are in short supply, especially in the large animal sector. Some vets in northwest Arkansas are adjusting to the changing landscape and seeing more patients. Tuesdays and Thursdays are surgery days for country vet service. It's 8 a.m. and Tim O'Neill is walking around the clinic with a to-go coffee cup. Before the first surgery of the day, a pig spay and hoof trimming, tests are being run and Duke, a gray long-haired chihuahua, is brought in. This is my close to $15,000 toaster and this is my $20,000 bread box. Runs the chemistry on the blood, runs the CBC. Animal health posters are on the walls, and there's a squeeze chute and corral in the back. O'Neill says he sees around 20 to 40 animals daily as a large and small animal veterinarian and Farmington. And at the clinic, they provide services ranging from regenerative medicine and checkups to dentistry. He used to work as the Washington County Stockyard Vet. I was still sale barn for over 12 years while I, after I opened this place. And uh, it just got so it was, I was ready to quit the barn and uh, just work here. And then also opening up a practice, then as I got older, I could do what I'm doing. More small and more stuff here. Continue to practice and not be as beat up because I had a bull get me close to 30 years ago and four years ago I had that knee replaced. Because of growth in northwest Arkansas, landscapes are changing, and O'Neill adjusted his practice. He doesn't make calls to farms anymore because it's safer to work at the clinic. And he still sees large animals, but most of his patients are small animals. I used to be able to take off on Rupal Road in Salem and go all the way to Tawnytown in Springdale and see nothing but cattle and horses and a few farms. Now, you take that drive, all you're going to see is houses, sports complexes, schools. That's it. You're no longer going to see those cattle, hay fields, or horses, hardly at all. And there's people where those animals were. Therefore, things have changed. For every person looking for a veterinary job, there were about 12 positions open in 2021, according to the American Medical Association. Although veterinarians are in demand, Northwest Arkansas has more veterinarians than some other parts of the state, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Marlo Ball's journey of caring for animals began at 15, when she volunteered at an animal rescue and got a job at a clinic. Ball, a small animal vet, started Soma Animal Clinic and House Calls about five years ago and is the president of the Arkansas Veterinary Medical Association. Um, Yeah, so I've been in a building for three years, and without a doubt, the number of calls that we are getting a day has doubled. The amount of appointments that we need to see in a day has, I'd say, doubled. And then the hardest part is that there are not enough vets working ER. It's creating a strain on everyone's ability to care for their clients. As of 2020, the majority of U.S. veterinarians were female, according to the association. For Ball, childcare is an issue for some veterinarians and deters others from coming back to the field. I think that a lot of veterinarians are women and they choose to go to part-time or not work as many hours to stay home with family. 
About 80% of veterinary college students accumulated debt, and the average was nearly $200,000 in 2020, according to the association. There are some programs to get a portion of their loans repaid, but Ball says some vets are not eligible. And expanding on the programs available could help. I really think there needs to be resources to reduce educational debt for essential services like food animal medicine. And that does exist already, but more funding for large animal veterinarians to have student access to student loan forgiveness programs. Rosalind Biggs is the Director of Continuing Education for Oklahoma State University's College of Veterinary Medicine, Beef Catalyst Specialist for the state's Extension Service, and a second-generation vet. She says there is no one concrete reason for the shortage, and there has been a need for veterinarians. So, you know, it's been an issue that was identified really for the for a very long time. You know, I, I graduated almost 20 years ago, and it was being discussed at that point, but certainly not as critical as it is right now. You know, and we've seen still answers to be figured out, but across all of veterinary medicine, and that includes our, our small animal sectors, definitely in our food animal sector and, you know, everything in between, something happened during that pandemic time and not that we're completely removed from that. Big says the university's program remains competitive and the teaching hospital is busy, but some graduates switch focus after school. The one thing that is is notable, however, for the profession is we, we're turning them out and they're starting there, but they aren't always staying within that mixed food animal or any large animal sector as we query them at five years. So we're watching those kind of numbers really, really closely. Big says in her extension work, she hears about the challenge of distance among producers and veterinarians and encourages producers to build relationships with their large animal vets to prepare for emergencies. For Ozarks at Large and the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. And Tuesdays and Thursdays are surgery days for county vet service. The chair of the Arkansas Public Service Commission is resigning from his position. In a statement, Ted Thomas said he is walking away from the state's chief regulatory agency over disagreements with energy providers. Thomas says he believes energy providers have acted sluggishly when deploying solar power and natural gas. He explained this position in an interview with Arkansas Week on Arkansas PBS. All the politicians in both parties, in my view, seem to want to line up with the sellers Who's representing the buyers? Now, I love all my sellers because there are no sellers. There's nothing for the buyers. But to me, the policy should be more buyer-oriented and consumer choice-oriented than it's been. But the politics of both parties are dominated by the sellers. Thomas said he believes individual consumers will save money when distributors start to rely more on solar power. You know, the nuclear folks, the wind folks, the solar folks, the gas folks, the coal folks, they've all got something they want to sell. And what we actually need is some market concept to sort the prices out and give consumers some ability uh, to hedge their, to, to pick which risks they want to take. Governor Asa Hutchinson has yet to announce a new chair of the Public Service Commission. Thomas is leaving with four years left on his term. His last day will be October 1st. Earlier this month, the Benton County Planning Board voted to table a decision to permit a 200-acre glamping development near Hobbs State Park in Benton County on the shores of Beaver Lake. Called Contentment at Beaver Lake, the luxury camping resort, once fully built, could accommodate as many as 1,100 campers. Plans for full-phase development of the facility include construction of 100 platform glamping tents, 18 covered wagons, 10 family cabins, 55 vacation cabins, two base camp lodges, three waterfront and four forest pavilions, as well as two swimming pools and bathhouses. Plans also include drilling a water well and excavating a commercial-scale leach field septic system. Noel Ottaviano, an area property owner, resides in the Lakeside District. Well, the meeting ended up uh, with the planning board uh, wanting a little bit more information on some of the conditions and a lot of that revolved around the water quality for all of Northwest Arkansas. The, uh, the 
a person from the Beaver Water District actually uh, spoke, and they are not in favor of a large development uh, against the lake because it's 4.3 miles from the water intake site. Two adjacent property owners this summer hired a legal team to convince county planners to reject the proposed development. In a memo provided to Ozarks at Large for this report, attorneys Larry McReady and Richard Mays write the planned glamping facility, which would be zoned commercial, is incompatible with adjoining agricultural and rural residential land use. Ottaviano says he thinks the county lacks resources to control resort traffic, pollution, noise, and intrusive lights. My opinion is that uh, you know, they, they want to have a luxury site, but all the environmental concerns and, and uh, the growth concerns, who's going to monitor all that? Um, you know, this is in the county. It's not as visible as, as in the city. I, again, I, I just you know, keep thinking about all the things that can go wrong and who's going to be watching that stuff. Developer Gene Nicholas, who recently hired an attorney to argue for its merits, says his planned luxury glamping resort will be a major destination for guests to gather and enjoy Ozark's beauty, as well as a boost to the local economy. Nicholas is seeking a conditional use permit from county planners to proceed with construction and address all concerns posed by residents, lawyers, and county planners. Benton County Planning Board will take up the matter again on the evening of September 21st. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering the nationally recognized Hendricks Odyssey program, which ensures students complete three or more hands-on learning experiences from internships and undergraduate research to service opportunities and study abroad programs. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more information. The Northwest Arkansas Jazz Society and KUAF present Hammond B3 organ master Pat Bianchi and his trio at the Roots Festival headquarters in Fayetteville, Saturday, September 24th at 7 p.m. Past winner of the best jazz organist in the New York City Hot House Reader Poll and Downbeat's Critics Poll, Bianchi returns to Fayetteville for an encore concert digjazz.com for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. So many thank yous to distribute on this Monday. Big, big thank yous to Timothy Dennis, Matthew Moore, Daniel Carruth, and Anna Pope for going above and beyond to produce Ozarks at Large the last few days while I was away. A great big thank you to KUAF's Community Engagement Manager, Jasper Logan, for curating the musical acts that performed at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art for the Constitution Day celebration that took place Saturday. And thank you to the artists who performed on the KUAF stage at Walker Landing at Crystal Bridges Saturday. And I'd also like to thank Crystal Bridges for inviting me to participate in Constitution Day and allowing me to partner with the 1848 painting War News from Mexico by Richard Catton Woodville for my presentation that took place in the gallery Saturday afternoon. The exhibition, We the People, The Radical Notion of Democracy, remains at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art through January 2nd. Well, I'm so excited about the Internet. To me, it's really just an unbelievable new thing to do that everybody's enjoying. And even though it's in its infancy, the next five years we'll see tremendous changes in shopping online. All right, Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Who was that amazing person who knew what the Internet was going to do? Well, uh, his name is Richard Tallheiber, and chances are you've never heard of him. Until you sent me the perspective for what we would talk about this week, I had never heard of him. Right, right. And and I met him back in 1999 when we did that interview. Um, he uh, He's from Arkansas. That's why we're doing this profile. He Little Rock native, right? Grew up in Little Rock, went to Hall High School, my alma mater, and uh, a few years before me, but uh, grew up and in the retail business, which you'll hear about here in a little bit, but he created and developed the Sharper Image, which back in the 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s was huge, huge. It was was synonymous with going to the mall. That's true. And And catalogs. And and cool. cool. Right, right. Uh, They had really great, slick catalogs. Yeah. But... um, you know, he, he grew up in Little Rock, moved out to San Francisco, 
and started this company. And when I was with KATV, we were going out to California to do a, another story. And I knew about Richard Tallheimer and had heard about him. And we set it up so we could spend a day with him while we were in San Francisco. And, um, well, Justin Akery was the reporter. Scott Munsell was the photographer. And we went out and uh, spent the day. It was the first brick-and-mortar store that he had Hmm. and the corporate headquarters, and we got to hang out with him. But uh, Justin Akery asked him about how he got started. Uh, Well, starting the Sharper Image was sort of an accident. I came out here after I got out of college, uh, had a great time in San Francisco, decided I wanted to try a mail-order ad because I heard the mail-order was an interesting way to start a business, and it worked. So the first ad led me to other ads in magazines, and that led to a catalog, and that led to stores. And what was that first first product? <laughs> well, the first product was a runner's watch that you used uh, when you were running, like jogging. Mm-hmm. It was real successful. And this is something you developed? Well, actually, I found the first digital chronograph that was waterproof that was suitable for runners, and that was a big deal back in 1977. Richard, and how is it said again? Talmeyer? Tallheimer. Tallheimer. Tallheimer yeah. is and, our subject this well, week. Well, and he was talking about a runner's watch. Which now are ubiquitous, but... They weren't around forever. Right. I mean, that was, the, I guess, the, the precursor for uh, uh, an Apple watch. Right. It didn't, of course, do all that stuff, right. but it was a digital watch. This is late 70s. Yeah. That he, uh, he put that on the market, and that's what, you know, made the company. Um, so Sharper Image, it was these slick catalogs and high-tech kind of I don't know, off-the-wall products that, that you could get. Those unique products made him a millionaire. Right. So um, here he talks to us about just some of his other products. Well, we're known for unusual products. For example, the massage chair that we sell for $3,000 is the world's best experience of an easy chair in your living room that really gives you great massages, three different kinds. But we also make some really interesting practical products. Like last year, we invented the world's first portable air conditioner that you wear on your neck, sort of like a little neck band, and that keeps you cool in the summertime. That's like $39, but it's been really successful. So it's a wide range of products. <laughs> the neck coolers. Neck coolers. I remember seeing those in the Sharper well, th- Image catalog. I, right, and I think they're still around. I think you're right, I mean, yeah. People still wear those things. And then there's all kinds of forms of massage chairs. Right. Now, the one he was selling for three grand. Three grand in 99. Right. Yeah. And, but it was a full um, wooden, nicely crafted and leather chair. It wasn't just a mat. You know, you right. can get those right. for a hundred bucks now. Right. But he, he had um, those really high-end products and ones that you would kind of just say – Wow, where did they come up with that? Right. And a lot of them really, really worked well. He took us around the store, and you could tell, man, was he a salesman. This is the world's first pet brush that washes your dog while you brush. You turn this on, it generates uh, ozone and ions, which removes odor and kills germs. You can sort of smell. Yeah. It smells real clean. Mm Mm-hmm. And as you brush the dog, it actually makes the dog smell good. It makes the fur of the dog smell good. Mm-hmm. So we invented this. It's Sharp Image Design. And it's been a real popular item. That's awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> I need, see, I want one for my dog. Yeah. You need one for your dog. Daisy would love that. Yes. Uh, he strikes me as, and I don't mean this as an insult to the late Ron Popeil, but you remember Ron Popeil, yes. the pocket fisherman. Oh, and, sure. But this isn't like... Seven steps above that. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, higher. Higher uh, end. Yes. Right. And, uh, clientele, higher right. clientele. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he, he he's not with the company anymore. Actually, the company doesn't exist anymore. Not really, it, no. No, and we'll get into that yeah. later and how all that happened. But um, I caught up with him last week and not only talked to him about that, but talk to him about how he made the transition uh, from catalog to Internet. And this is a really interesting story. Yeah, well, so when Steve Jobs left Apple, he started a company called Next Computer. And Next 
originally was a piece of hardware, but then that didn't sell well. So he transitioned into software. And so then he, his first big customer for his software was the launch of the Sharper Image Online web store. Well, if you're going to pick someone to help you make the transition... He's in good company. Yes. Steve Jobs. Wow. You know, he's... Of course, they were out there at the same time. Right. You know. And, you know, he was in between gigs. <laughs> wow. In between Apple right. gigs. And he was, you know, developing software, and he designed their website. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. So let's jump back, because uh, we had a blast going through it the store like with him. It, it was a lot of fun, and he even... Uh, you know, was demonstrating some of his products, but um, he was giving some really good sales pitches. Here's something that was really unique back then, but is common today. This is the little motorized scooter. Yeah, you just plug this in to recharge it. Just a regular outlet. Yep, huh. and uh, it goes 12 miles an hour. It's totally silent, no maintenance ever. What a great product. <laughs> yeah, that's neat. I mean, do, you go, do you go shopping or? You can go about 50 miles on a charge. Oh, really? So just to run errands, like, you know, from the studio down to pick up sandwiches and come back or something. What a great old product. What's this run for? Uh, $700. You can't, you know, call the hogs in Fayetteville without seeing See, a scooter. That's right. And he was selling them for $700. He even got on it and rode it around the, the store. I've got to ask you, because going back 23 years, when you're talking to him about the Internet during this report and, and you're hearing about these scooters and the other thing, what did you think? Did you think, I'm looking at the future, or did you just think, this is interesting, and who knows what will happen? Um, I think it was a little bit of both. Okay. Um, I was talking to Justin Acre, the reporter, mm -hmm. um, the other day, and I said, what do you remember about uh, that story? And he said, I remember really annoying Richard Tallheimer by calling his uh, products off the wall, uh -huh. and that kind of annoyed him. But I looked back at the at the field tapes, mm -hmm. and he, and yeah, Justin said that a lot. He kept saying <laughs> off the wall, and I remember kind of going, "Okay, okay, <laughs> bring it down a right, little bit, Justin." Right. But um, well, Justin we had a good time with him. He had huh? to be Justin had to be pretty young. Yes, he he hadn't been at the station very long. Okay, um, and. Yeah, we went out there and covered another story while we're there that I hope that uh, we'll be able to do a segment on uh, that we did up in Northern California. Oh, okay. That I'll I'll tell you about. Okay. Uh, you also um, during this report, he he mentioned his love of toys. Yes, he did, and um, yeah, let's hear what he says about that. You name it. I just uh, I like gadgets and I like grown-up toys, and I like small toys, so that's a lot what the Sharper Image is about. When you were a kid, did you, did you look to develop things? Did you have any ideas? Did you say, wow, you know, I can do this if I put these two things together? Were you creative like that when you were younger? Well, I was very lucky. When I was like 10 to 12 years old, I worked in the toy department of the department store that used to be called Gus Blast and is now a Dillard's, and my father was running the toy department. So I got to learn what people liked and how they played with toys. And I really think from that, the Sharper Image was born. All right, you mentioned earlier he's not with Sharper Image anymore. And Sharper Image, I think, exists somewhere on paper, but it's not what it was all right. those years ago. Right, it basically went, went belly up. But there, there was one thing that really kind of started the whole snowball that, that was the demise of the sharper image, and it, a matter of fact, uh, during that 1999 tour, it was a new product that they had on the floor, and he was very excited about it, and he showed it to us. Is this one of the silent air? Yeah, this is the totally silent air purifier. And you said it doesn't have any, any motors at all? There's no motors, work? nothing to replace ever, and yet air's moving. This is, oh, this is ionic too, kind of the same concept uh -huh. as this, this deal. And so all you do is you put these rods here. You can see how much this one's been running for a week or two, and it's picked up all this junk on it because oh. it's constantly cleaning the air, mm -hmm. and it's doing it totally silently, and you never have to replace a filter ever. With most air filters, like this Honeywell, for example, you've got to buy $100 worth of filters every year and go to a lot of work to change them. Here's a product that not only is it silent, 
and it moves air, but you never have to buy a filter. It's a great product. The Ionic Breeze. Which did create um, some problems. In fact, you know, I was doing a little bit of research getting ready for this. Yeah. And there was a, there was a conflict with Consumer Reports oh, over this. Oh, big one. They, um, they did a review. Uh, this was in 2003, so just a few years right. after we were there, and they had introduced it because it sold really well. And then Consumer Reports did... Uh, an, a testing of air purifiers, mm-hmm. and it wound up last on the list. And they even said that their test showed that um, it released uh, dangerous ozone. Uh, right. Or, or, or hazardous ozone levels could be released, I think, is what they said. Yes. Yeah. Well, and so... Uh, sharper image sued specifically yeah Richard Tallheimer sued and the case was dismissed so that was another uh, black eye they even turned around and um, did another report on more about mm-hmm. the the questionable uh, healthiness of of these products right yeah so um Sales and profits started to go down in the, you know, the later 2000s, mid-2000s. And so some new investors came in on the board, and uh, they ousted Tallheimer. And this is, I asked him about that. So I left uh, the Sharper Image in 2006, and that was sort of an unpleasant fight with an activist shareholder group that had bought 12% of the company uh-huh. and I still own 21% of the company. So I gave them two seats of our nine on the board and then we didn't get along at all. So they wanted me to leave and I was sort of ready to leave after 37 years. So they agreed uh-huh. to buy the remaining 21% of the stock and so they paid me off in May of 2007, the remaining 21%. I was out of the company completely. And then they went bankrupt eight months later. That was crazy. So they buy out his shares. He's done. Yeah. And he uh, walked out with, you know, 21% of the company's cash or what they paid right. him for. And uh, he took the money and ran and left them with all of those problems. Yeah. Um, the bad publicity and, uh, you know, he, they were having some class action suits, I believe, uh, brought against them. But uh, he went on to say what ended up happening to the company after he left. So they closed 200 stores. They laid off 4,000 employees. I took the money and started pursuing something I'd always loved, which was investing. And I call it the Sharper Fund, even though it's a private fund. and it's done terrific. You can visit the website, thesharperfund.com, and see that five-year performance. But it's just done terrific. So, uh, kind of laughed all the way to the bank. Yeah, I, think. I guess. I yeah. mean, in less than a year, uh, they filed for bankruptcy. Yeah, like nine months. I think he said. Yeah, yeah, nine or ten months. Yeah. So, um, you know, you can still check out his products. I mean, the the fun that he does is. You know, it's a private fund. He right. just does that. He, and he said he spends about six hours a day mm. uh, just handling his investments. And it, he said he's making more money than he did when he owned Sharper Image just with his private investing. But you can still get a little taste of the Sharper Image uh, ideas because he has another website now. And it's called Richard Solo. Dot com, I guess aptly named. Right. But, you know, he has, uh, you know, a few dozen items on there. I've looked at it. It's it's a good-looking website, and they're, they're really similar products that you would see in the original catalog or website. So when I left Sharper Image, I had this sort of little fantasy that I would start a little company online selling unusual products, sort of like when I started the Sharper Image. So I still have it. It's still online at richardsolo.com, but it's really a hobby. It's not a business. I wish it were a business, 
But what I found is that with Amazon selling everything and with me not having enough volume to create products from scratch, like I did at Sharper Image, I just can't compete uh, by buying other people's products with the fact that everything in the world is available on Amazon. So it, I still have it. It's a nice little hobby. I've got about five employees and we keep plugging away, but it's a hobby. My, my time is spent six hours a day on following my investments. It's interesting. We started this with a, you know, his comment, his, his, his insight into what the internet was going to be. And here you were talking to him 23 years later and uh, the internet's turned, you know, he said, yeah, I can't compete with Amazon because right. Amazon is this behemoth and, and it's just, Interesting that you brought it full circle there. Well, and I asked him, um, so when you had your website and your catalogs, were you Amazon before Amazon? He said, no, Sears and Roebuck mm. was Amazon before Amazon. Because they, they were, yeah. you know, the king of, of catalogs. But, you know, then Interesting. Amazon took the net. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did he remember that day? Did you ask him if he remembered when you guys were there? And you know, I'd never yeah. asked him, but he he got back with me right away. Right. So I think he probably did, or at least was glad to talk to somebody from Arkansas. Right. And I've found that um, in going back on some of these stories, a lot of people do remember, or if they don't remember at first, when we start talking mm-hmm. about it, it jogs their memory, and that it helps that I'll. And, you know, you can do this now. I'll just email them sure. a video copy oh, of, of the story. Of course. Now yeah. that I'm digitizing everything. Yeah. So it's it's a lot of fun to be able to find something from 23 years ago and email it to somebody. Well, you asked him about Arkansas 23 years ago. That's right. And um, this is what he had to say. You know, one of the things I really believe helped my success was growing up in Little Rock and spending my first 18 years in Arkansas and having a really good grounding. It taught me a lot of what different people want across a wide spectrum of uh, people. And it also gave me really good values of just treating people fairly and uh, being a decent person. So I tried to transition into my business the same values. Well, Randy, thank you. I, I love the ones when it's about someone I think most of our listeners know about, but I also love the ones when it's introducing us to someone that very few of us had ever heard of. It's a lot of fun. And I get to look back, you know, I take a little walk down memory lane and revisit part of my career back in the day. So I still marvel that KATV sent three people out. I mean, you know, last week we talked about going to the North Pole. Right. Or the Arctic Circle. And 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 they spent a lot of money. They did. And that was one thing KATV was committed to is that um, we would go and do stories that the other stations wouldn't. You know, the one thing that it had to have is an Arkansas connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, the station didn't mind spending the resources to be able to, to say, we can bring you what the others can't. Right. And it's interesting. Yeah. It's... Well, and I had a lot of fun doing it. Well, and we're all benefiting from it, you know. Well, thanks. Two and a half decades later or whatever. <laughs> That's great. Hey, I'm just dusting it off. <laughs> I appreciate and, it. And, hey, queuing it back up. <laughs> all right. You'll be back next week? Absolutely. The Momentary in Bentonville offers a packed schedule of live music concerts in dynamic spaces. From classical contemporaries such as Jennifer Coe and Tigran Hamasian Trio to indie pop with Japanese Breakfast and an acoustic evening with Lyle Lovett and John Hyatt. And coming this October, a four-day electronic musical experience at Momentous with headliner Arca. Tickets and more at themomentary.org. Congratulations to Yayo's Restaurant in Bentonville for being included in today's New York Times list of 50 American restaurants the newspaper's food critics are excited about right now. The write-up in the Times offers a brief account of Hector Rios' path from establishing a farm in northwest Arkansas to creating a food truck to the current roster of Yayo's restaurants, catering, and more. Brett Anderson, the writer of the piece, highlights the mole-draped chicken and 
as one of the intriguing items on the menu. You can find that in today's New York Times. One of the most celebrated vocal ensembles in the world is coming to Fayetteville this weekend. The Spelman College Glee Club will perform at the historic St. James Missionary Baptist Church on North Street in Fayetteville Saturday night at 7. The performance will be free and open to the public. Organizers do ask that you register if you plan to attend so they can get a headcount. More information at stjbc.org. Just think St. St. James Baptist Church, stjbc.org. And congratulations to former Arkansas Razorback graduate assistant coach for the Arkansas Razorback women's basketball team, Kelsey Plum. Plum and her Las Vegas Aces teammates captured the WNBA championship yesterday. Plum adds that league championship to her trophy case that already includes a gold medal from last year's Summer Olympics when she helped the U.S. team win the inaugural three-on-three Olympic basketball competition. Tomorrow on Ozarks, we consider the architecture, place, and more of the contemporary South. I think, and I'm not alone in this, that... Uh, and I'm not alone in architecture. I'm not alone, I think, in uh, across the ranges of, of cultural expression that there are any number of tropes or mm-hmm. default settings in the public mind um, and in, let's just say, the, the general reputation uh, regarding um, the American South. A preview of a symposium taking place on the University of Arkansas campus this week about the place of practice and the practice of place. That's on tomorrow's show at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF and on demand with the absolutely free Ozarks at Large podcast. Mike check, Mike check. This is Ryan Versi, KUAF's new underwriting director. KUAF's news and music programming reaches more than 50,000 people each week over the air, online, and through our iOS app. And you could reach our audience with your business or organization by underwriting on KUAF. To learn more about underwriting, email me at ryan at kuaf.com. That's R-Y-A-N at kuaf.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Pat Bianchi is coming back to Northwest Arkansas. The man voted best jazz organist in the NYC Hot House Readers Poll is no stranger here. Robert Ginsburg, the host of Shades of Jazz on KUAF, recently called Pat to ask him about his return and about his career. Award-winning jazz organist Pat Bianchi is no stranger to Northwest Arkansas. He's appeared on three separate occasions in three different venues over the years. Bianchi returns to close the Northwest Arkansas Jazz Society in KUAF's 24th annual Summer Jazz Concert Series at Roots Headquarters on Saturday, September 24th. I spoke with Pat recently about the evolution of the Hammond B3 organ and jazz and his dedication to the tradition. Pat, it's great to have you coming back to town. Robert, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be coming back. Your concert on September 24th will be your fourth visit to Northwest Arkansas. You first appeared in 2015 with guitar legend Pat Martino. Uh, Carmen and Tori was on drums. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you were back for a, another Northwest Arkansas Jazz Society summer concert with Paul Bolenbach and Byron Landum. That was in 2018. Mm -hmm. And then most recently, you were here as a sideman with Clark Gibson's sextet. We're going to have to get you an apartment here, I think. Yeah, I was hoping for it. You know, I think it would be kind of nice to be able to commute between uh, New York City and Arkansas. Just, you know, when I need a break, come and hang out. I think it'd be great. Your trio this time around is a little different. You're mixing it up. Paul Bolenbach will be back on guitar. But the drummer is someone who I don't think has ever performed here. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always appeared with Byron Landum, you you know, and worked in that context of the trio. But um, I'm just doing a couple different projects, and this particular project that I'm doing uh, features uh, a drummer, Colin Stranahan, who was with Jonathan Kreisberg, a great guitarist for, gosh, 10, 15 years almost. And I actually knew Colin while living in Denver, Colorado back in uh, the early 2000s. He's a few years younger than me, so he was coming up on the scene, and we had done a bunch of playing together and always kept in touch. And, you know, especially during the pandemic, we had talked about you know doing some playing together now and then and you know doing some different projects so i'm excited to uh do this gig with him for sure i think it'll be a lot of fun you've really led a life in music i know you began playing when you were very young and my understanding is you actually began gigging when you were like 11 is that true 
Yeah, I started, well, first of all, I come from a family of musicians. My father and both grandfathers worked, you know, in the later years, weekend, you know, we're weekend warriors playing a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say big band, I wouldn't say jazz, more like the dance band kind of scene. Uh, at the time, especially in the 70s and 80s, weddings where they had uh, groups, you know, smaller groups and playing, you know, dance music was popular. So they'd be working all the time. So I grew up around that. And I took a liking to just music at a very young age. And I got my first keyboards around seven years old. And then, yeah, my first gig, I believe, was 11. And by 13, I was doing gigs uh, with the trio my father was with. I was playing a keyboard that was programmed to sound like an organ. And so that was my introduction. <laughs> well, it sounds like maybe this is going to work out for you, Pat. Uh, some days, yes. It feels like some days it's like I feel like no. But I mean, that's just the, the life in music. I mean, it's you know, nothing is ever promised, but it's a passion. It's something that I love and keep finding a, to, a ways to do it one way or another, whether it's performing or teaching or, you know, doing whatever recording. And in the end, I'm very grateful that I'm able to do this full time. Pat, your career has evolved from primarily being a sideman with some of the greats of jazz, you know, legendary performers like Dakota Stanton, Pat Martino, Lou Donaldson. You played with another B3 organist, one of your mentors, Joey DeFrancesco, and the list goes on and on. But as I say, you have evolved into a leader in your own right and an educator as well as an associate professor at Berkeley School of Music. Are you able in any way to bring the knowledge from the bandstand into the classroom so the young aspiring jazz musicians have some of that information as well? I feel really, really lucky that I was able to serve as an apprentice to a lot of these older musicians because that type of education of, you know, learning, not only learning from the street, so to speak, but learning from people who've been doing it decades and decades longer than I had been doing it really gives you something in the and that you learn that you can't always pick up in a classroom. What I try to do the best I can is try to bring my experiences and literally tell the stories that I've experienced or the situations and especially the, the not so good ones, especially because they then hopefully they get a sense of what that was like. Well, you've piqued my, my curiosity. Can you share one of those not so great stories? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. I was my very first gig with Lou Donaldson. You know, we were going down to a left bank jazz society to play the festival in Maryland. So I was, you know, real excited to do this and, you know, I couldn't believe, oh my God, Donaldson. So we get to the, to the venue. So we play the first couple tunes, you know, places mobbed. And Lou looks over at me and goes, you know, the masquerade is over. And I said, not really. I don't really know that well. And he looks at me, looks at the audience, gets down the microphone and goes, well, you're going to learn the song right now counts off the tune and for a couple courses I had to fumble through until I got it in front of five six hundred people and that you know taught me a, a one of about many valuable lessons is you never know what's going to happen on the bandstand The Hammond B3 organ has always had a very special place in the world of jazz and some great practitioners, people like Jimmy Smith, Jack McDuff, Larry Young, just to name a few. But unquestionably, your sound and your style was influenced perhaps the most by Joey DeFrancesco, who passed away just a few weeks ago. And also by Dr. Lonnie Smith, another great jazz organist who was a big influence on you. And I know how both were friends of yours as well. I'm wondering how the weight of that loss has impacted you. 
Yeah, at the yeah, I've known Joey personally since gosh, 1997, I believe. So I've got almost uh, what is it, a long time, you know, 20, <laughs> almost 20. You know, we always say how long, and that's been. But yeah, I mean, and he's been, you know, had been an influence in my life, had been an influence in music for sure. I mean, we did tour together back in the you know 2008 2009 um you know so there was a a lot of affiliation between him and i for sure and you know i decided you know after kind of recovering from the shock of you know finding out about his passing you know i decided with some of these concerts i have coming up the best thing a great thing to do would be to play songs that he had done definitely arrangements that he had done as well as you know kind of pay a nod to Dr. Lonnie Smith I put a program together for for the for the concert, you know, comprising of music, whether it be their originals or songs that they were known 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 to have played, uh, to present to everybody in uh, in a couple weeks. So, uh, you know, I, for me, it'll be very special to do that. So I don't because I don't get to play this music very often that we'll be doing, and it's not only it's been great to you know, play their music and keep playing their music. But, you know, it's been great for me to kind of dive back into recordings I hadn't listened to in a long time. And, you know, which reminds me of stories, you know, things, you know, knowing both those guys for so long. That's, that's a beautiful thing, Pat. You often hear people say they live on in their music. Well, the fact that you're doing this is the real manifestation of that. The Hammond B3 organ really strikes me as a monster of an instrument. And by that, I mean, it's, very difficult to play two sets of keyboards. Then you have all these pulls and stops that you're f- operating at the same time. And players like you and the great Hammond B3 players are also playing bass with f- their feet, stepping on foot pedals. It It's remarkable. You almost have to be an octopus to play this thing. It's very challenging. I mean, you know, I'm like obsessive about practicing and working on things just because just to maintain certain aspects is, you know, it definitely, it takes work. And, you know, also beyond that, you know, in most, in most situations in jazz, let's face it, there is a person that is dedicated to playing only bass and their job is to play great notes and lock up with the drummer. And an organist, you know, has to do double duty in that sense, you know, so there's being able to play with different musicians who feel things in different places or hear things in different places. There's the independence like you talk about. Um, it is a challenge. I mean, you know, there's that tune uh, that I used to play a lot, uh, Chick Corea's Humpty Dumpty, yes. which is a challenging tune to play as it is on a piano or play on a uh, guitar or a horn or whatever, but then taking the, the organ, the chord changes, things like that are completely different. That really forced me into thinking in some different ways, musically and harmonically, because it's like, oh, wow, just because I could do that on piano or whatever, it takes uh, like a ton more work to do on organ, but the result was pretty unique and pretty cool, you know, and still, I was still, you know, trying to maintain that same kind of fire and energy and not be overly intellectual, you know, when I played it. So it was it's like, wow, okay, this is a direction I think I'd want to continue exploring, whether it becomes popular or not. It, you know, it almost doesn't matter, you know, at this point, it's just about, you know, growing musically and, you know, finding what appeals to me. Thank you for taking this time to speak with me, Pat. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you so much for uh, inviting me to, to be here today, as well as inviting me to come back to uh, perform at Fayetteville. It's going to be a lot of fun.
Matt Bianchi with his trio will be a guest of the Northwest Arkansas Jazz Society Saturday night beginning at 7 at the Roots HQ on the Fayetteville Square. Pat talks with Robert Ginsburg, who is the host of Shades of Jazz on KUAF every week. You can hear Shades of Jazz Friday nights from 10 to midnight on 91.3 KUAF. Then it airs again Saturdays from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on KUAF 3. KUAF 3 is our mostly jazz channel that also rebroadcasts all of our original music programming on the weekend. You can listen to KUAF 3 for free on your HD radio, in your car, or at home. You can also go to KUAF.com and stream KUAF 3 there. You can use the absolutely free KUAF app. It has a button for KUAF 3. And you can also ask your smart speaker to please play KUAF 3. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Greenacre Easy Living, a small assisted living located in Rogers and serving the elderly of Arkansas under the same ownership since 1992. 631-1552 or greenacreeasyliving.com for more information. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Green Forest. KUAF 91.3, your public radio station or NPR station since 1985. You can learn more about us at KUAF.com. Contributors today included Anna Pope and Robert Ginsburg. Oh, also Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Jacqueline Froelich provided us the sound and information about the Benton County hearing about the proposed glamping campground. Timothy Dennis produced today's show inside the Herald and Blanchcock News studio. We have so much more coming your way this week. Uh, Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, Daniel Carruth will give us some highlights of the next episode of the Natural Election Podcast that's produced here at the Carver Center for Public Radio. That's on tomorrow's show. Then Wednesday, we'll have an excerpt from the next episode from Undisciplined, the podcast produced here by Matthew Moore. We're going to be highlighting some of the artists and musicians that are going to be playing at the Format Festival, the first ever Format Festival in Bentonville this weekend, and much more. So keep coming back noon and 7 or using the Ozarks at Large podcast. By the way, speaking of music, our theme is titled The First to Raw. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. You can find out more about Daryl at DarylShawn.com or by just searching for him on Instagram or Facebook. And thanks to everyone who has contributed so far in September. This is our month-long fall fundraising month. We'll have an on-air fundraiser the last week of this month, but we're trying to raise as much as we can before that on-air fundraiser. Guess what? Thanks to you and listeners just like you, as of this weekend, more than $28,000 raised before the on-air fundraiser. If you'd like to contribute or perhaps become a sustaining member, you can find out how to do that. It's very easy just by going to our website, supportkuaf.com. Again, thanks to everyone here at the Carver Center for helping me out while I was out the last several days. We will be back with a brand new show tomorrow at noon and 7 from the Carver Center. I'm Kyle Kellums. Have a great rest of your Monday.